0: This week on the Back Table Podcast,
1: overall blend is that the OBLs down ten to fifteen percent this year, uh, going into twenty three, and the uh, ASCs uh, on any particular procedure it can be anywhere from three percent to thirty percent up, and we see that you know iliac intervention is is a great marquee end of the conversation in that you know iliacs are uh, they're they're into that thirty to fifty percent increase range in the surgery center as opposed to the OBL. Uh, that would be a, a balloon angioplasty and stent, and then if you add shockwave to that, because it's uh you know most of those iliac lesions that Blake and I see, at least in Oklahoma, are extremely calcified and are advantageous to do with shockwave.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. When you need to restore flow in an ischemic limb, there's no time to lose. You need the Pounce Thrombectomy System. The Pounce System from Sermonix is a purpose-built percutaneous device for removing thrombus and embolus in the peripheral vasculature. No capital equipment or aspiration needed. Just grab, go, and restore flow. It's simple. With the Pounce system, you place the basket wire distal to the clot, place the collection funnel proximal to the clot, pull back to collect the clot in the funnel, and retract the system through your guide sheath. The secret sauce? The Pounce funnel is designed to macerate and dehydrate the clot, allowing you to remove even large amounts of material through a seven-french sheath. Visit PounceSystem.com to learn how physicians have used the device to accelerate on-table flow restoration while reducing use of thrombolytics. Pounce thrown back to me. Strike quickly to capture and remove clot. Now, back to the episode. We have two recurrent guests. This is y'all's fourth time on the show. Hard to believe, right? Going back to episode 69. You were on 69, 129, and 205 was the last time we covered reimbursement update. And we're going to do another reimbursement update because it's been about a year. Oh, definitely over a year since we did it last. Blake and Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, man.
0: Good to be back.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. Really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to this every year as far as uh, how we can help the people, as far as updates on reimbursement and how it's moving one way or the other and what we would recommend, you know, going forward.
2: Yeah, we got a lot of great feedback after that last episode we did, and it was great to see you guys at OEIS. A little shout out to OEIS because that was a great conference. That was the first time, I, uh, actually second time I went, but it was in Vegas, and and we got to hang out with you guys and Sonny Bagla and a lot of people that I hadn't seen in a long time. So let's start out with just any new developments in the practice. You did mention last time that you did team up with a firm, but we didn't get into many details, but anything else that, uh, since the last time we spoke?
1: Yeah, we we did uh, partner up November of, of last year, so about a year and a month in uh, with private equity firm Assured Health Partners, which uh, our platform is called uh, Heart and Vascular Partners, HVP. And in just one year, we've extended uh, Oklahoma City to uh, Colorado Springs, uh, Denver, Pueblo, Texas, a few locations in Texas, uh, and also uh, Illinois and Indi- Indiana, all of those uh, areas, so mostly uh, cardiology, vascular surgery, and interventional radiology, obviously.
2: Wow. So you guys have grown that much just in the last year and a half? Yeah, you're in in, um, 17 days. Wow. That's incredible. And covering, like you said, so are all those sites similar to your site in Oklahoma City, where it's a combination of IR, vascular surgery, and IC?
1: So a lot of them are um, cardiology-based, but then we uh, move vascular surgery and IR into them very quickly, and a lot of these are hospital-based docs that are tired of that life and uh, want to start something uh, on their own and drive a legacy and and build something that provides uh, number one patient care outcomes and satisfaction at the top of the list. and uh, And so you have different places, like some places we partner with and buy, are um, do you have an ASC or they have an OBL only and then other places have nothing so there's a lot of gap there uh, as far as uh, what we do some some places we're building ground up or we're uh, buying real estate and uh, building out an ASC from there and some places we have to build an MOB and an ASC so uh, a lot of challenges, but uh, C suite uh, with uh, Heart and Vast for Partners is completely built out with uh, extremely talented people that uh, we're very proud of and uh, look forward to the future for sure.
2: So, since we already kind of jumped into it, let's th- the way I wanted to structure this episode, kind of like we did last one, was um, some questions from the audience. I did get a lot of questions from the audience, and apologies if I don't get to all of them, but we want to kind of streamline this conversation. But since we're already talking about private equity activity and these acquisitions. Uh, I do have a question from Franklin Yao and Kavi Devalapalli along these lines. So Franklin wants to know, you know, what advantages, uh, and you kind of already mentioned them, but, you know, maybe more globally, what advantages does alignment with a PE firm provide when it comes to operational efficiency and cost savings? And do you think it's essential for survival even at this point?
1: Well, I think it probably, you know, it, it provides uh, scale and the capability to provide a value-based care model uh, in the future, which, uh, you know, in the middle of the country where, where we are and, and uh, where where you're from, Aaron is not going to get there first. It'll be the Californias and the East Coast of the world that go value-based care first, but we will be ready for it when it's there and have a model of cardiovascular care that uh, consists of... Uh, cardiologists, uh, vascular surgeons, and interventional radiologists to offer to payers that is uh, extremely valuable in the space uh, as far as being a, a better place for patient care, outcomes, satisfaction, infection rates, all those kind of things. And obviously, they'll be paying a lower cost for the service in that outpatient space. So uh, we're we're real excited about it. Uh, I think it's I think it's the way of the future for sure. If you're out there alone, it's going to be a little tough.
2: Yeah, and, and kind of along those lines, Kavi wants to know: Are you does a GPO or MSO come with that, or is it, or do you use a, a buying collective separate from the PE firm?
1: Yeah, our particular uh, model is uh, every one of the buys continues to maintain local control. I mean, where, where you need help, we will help you, but local control is the key. Uh, the docs continue to run their own practice, but if they need help in RCM or they need help recruiting, they need help in marketing, uh, we have all of those scaled and ready to go. Uh, but we definitely do not force those things on any local practice. If they're doing it well and they're doing it better than cardiovascular health clinic here in, the city, in Oklahoma City, then we'll adopt their method. Okay, so it's uh, it's a partnership that's uh, that's uh, valued on local control.
2: That's great. It sounds like it. Uh, yeah, it allows for that flexibility, and um, which is what a lot of docs want. They don't want to be forced to use something that they're not used to. Because as you, I mean, like we all know, like that doesn't lead to better patient care if you're forced to use a device that you're not familiar with, or maybe uh, you didn't train with, or it, that is forced upon you. So th- that's great. We will
1: not be one vendor more than likely. I mean, if a certain place is used to one atherectomy device, we still have scale to buy that at a very competitive price.
2: Okay. Let me ask just generally first, what's on the butcher's block? What do we know? What do we currently know is happening um, and anything that we're anticipating? Since I know you guys are keeping a close eye on, on reimbursement cuts.
1: I'll let uh, Blake talk in, in just a second uh, on uh, obviously his his expertise on uh, embolization and uh, which is a big part of our practice uh, and Blake has made that part of our practice very successful. But on the arterial side, which Blake is <laughs> uh, just as involved with as I am, also. But the overall blend is that the OBLs down ten to fifteen percent this year. Uh, going into 23, and the uh, ASCs uh, on any particular procedure it can be anywhere from three percent to 30 percent up, and we see that you know iliac intervention is is a great marquee end of the conversation, and that you know iliacs are uh, they're they're into that 30 to 50 percent increase range in the surgery center as opposed to the OBL. Uh, that would be a, a balloon angioplasty and stent, and then if you add shockwave to that because it's uh, you know most of those Iliac lesions that Blake and I see, at least in Oklahoma, are extremely calcified and are advantageous to do with shockwave. Uh, and the the payment is, uh, you know, it goes up sixty percent when you use it with uh, shockwave. So, and that is not a payable code in the OBL.
2: Okay, yeah, exactly. And so that's what Tim Yates wanted to know: is 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 the OBL going to be out phased out by the ASC given these cuts? Um, is this all kind of like strategized by cms uh, you know what what are your what are your thoughts on that or what do you what are you guys seeing when it comes to obl versus asc
1: well i think Blake and i both can agree and i'll quit talking here let blake talk but uh, i think at the end of the day the problem i think that some of the issues with with these cuts are the bad players yeah uh in the obl market and so they see you know that that they they i think they see that happening and they want they want a licensed J.C.O accredited, AAA accredited, whatever you choose, our our particular platformers are all JCO accredited, but you can still maintain your hybrid status. But, um, uh, I think that's why it's being pushed. And also, you know, just more and more codes are coming over every year. Uh, we actually got, uh, from Humana uh, Medicare plan, uh, had approved, uh, as of January of 2023, T-cars are approved in the space. So, um, I think it's only a matter of time until those are all going to come, uh, you know, to, to a point where, you know, the safety's not, when I say that, I mean, carotids and T-cars and, you know, most of my fem pops uh, that are st- pretty straightforward, open fem pops. you know, go home the next day. And, you know, in, in our, um, 20,000 square foot facility, we have overnight stay beds so you know we keep them overnight if needed uh, on those particular procedures and we built those in anticipation of some of these procedures uh, you know moving over from the hospital to the surgery space center.
2: Blake let's talk a little bit about embolization before I jump into some more questions that are globally kind of about ASC versus OBL. What are we seeing on the embolization side in terms of OBL versus ASC?
0: Yeah, exactly. So on the embolization side, which obviously most IR, especially that are in an OBL setting already, I mean, that's a large part of their practice from a financial standpoint, right? I mean, PAD and EMBO are going to be our highest reimbursing procedures that we do for arterial and venous. It's unfortunately going to the ASC side now. Um, that's slowly showing a decrease in the OBL and increase in the ASC. However, and and that it's ranges anywhere for so the decreases in the OBL are around seven to eight percent, and they're increasing in the ASC anywhere from three to 30 percent. It's kind of a broad range, but it just depends on what you're doing. So we're seeing the trend there. However, our main kind of thing that we're doing, if you're doing prostates or you're doing Uh, fibroid embolization. So the end-organ ischemia code, however, is still maintaining. It is slowly decreasing a little bit in the OBL and increasing the ESC, but there's still about a 3,500 gap, um, at least here in Oklahoma, and I'm sure it's going to be that nationwide. So it still makes way more sense to continue the uh, end-organ ischemia embolization in your OBL space for sure.
1: I will add on to that, if I send Blake, or if I do an embolization of an internal iliac, uh, or a accessory renal to prep for a, uh, aneurysm repair in the hospital, that's now better in the surgery center because that's not, you know, end organ because it's, you know, it's, a, it's just a, uh, arterial embolization. So, you know, those are fine differences that you really have to know before you place that patient in that, you know, place of service.
2: Yeah. So another question from Tim, you know, w- with continued drops in reimbursement, you know, even though they're they're slight uh, in some places, he he wants to ask you guys, you know, when does our practice become unsafe because of volume demands to make up the bottom line? And, and he also kind of wants to know about diversification. How specialized are you guys getting versus trying to to like new service lines? I know both previously we've talked about kyphoplasty and MSK embolizations as well, not just P.A.D. And, and and embolization, but you know, you you got you still got to be specialized. At what point does diversification and volume make it just unmanageable or unscalable, even?
1: Well, I think that's why it's so important to have multi you know multi-disciplinary approach and not just I.R.s, not just vascular surgeons, and not just cardiologists. Yeah, because I mean, we were the first surgery center in the country to. Uh, implant, a a heart failure device called a barostem. Barostem is a uh, carotid bifurcation stimulation uh, of the um, bifurcation of the carotid. And we hooked that up to uh, basically a pacemaker generator and it uh, it helps heart failure patients and is also going to be approved in Q2 of 23 for hypertension that's uncontrolled uh, also. And those are really big returns. Uh, You know, those are... um, those are pass-through codes on the device, and those are all Medicare-approved uh, in the space. And um, again, we've done uh, four now, and we, we were the first ASC in the country to do one in that space, so.
2: Perfect, and so Krishnaman, a vascular surgeon out of Columbus, Ohio, wanted to ask, it seems like every fall, as an interventional community, we're reactively trying to block CMS reimbursement cuts. Uh, and, I, and I know you guys are pretty involved but he, he kind of wants to know for those independent guys out there, are there ways we can proactively act to c- secure our payment rates for the complex work that we do?
1: Yeah, I think the best way uh, Blake can speak on this too is is the vendors really work hard for us in that they pay a lot of money to lobbyists. And you know how that works, unfortunately. I, I don't like the way it works. I don't think any of us here on on Backtable like the way that works, but uh it is a truth that uh, they they uh, spend a lot of money lobbying for OBLs and surgery centers uh, to try their best to not get, uh, you know, cuts. For instance, some of the add-on cardiology codes with FFR are being reimbursed in 2023 now where they weren't. We got cut on atherectomy reimbursement uh, because of a, you know, a review that... Uh, you know, mostly, most of the time that comes from ivory towers and, and they don't want to see that being done as an outpatient, even though they're sending their patients home the same day too. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, those, those are things that vendors, uh, uh, and I mean the big boys, the Bostons of the world, the Abbots of the world, the Phillips of the world, that they really, really do help us uh, in that. And I, I would go to them first and see if there's anything that you can help them write or you can help them uh, articulate in any way uh that would be my my uh my advice okay
0: I mean to that point, they got a lot more money than we'll ever have as an i r community to put together and go to Washington and fight right, plus they're financially way more incentive to uh, do it and maintain those rates because ultimately they're trying to prove why they're they're charging what they're charging to have the for their device, right so
2: right, yeah.
0: Makes a lot of sense to his point that they're involved in that.
2: Yeah. I mean, otherwise as physicians, just to have some margin, we'll have to go with the cheapest devices, which, you know, is not a good solution either.
1: And I think that's, that's another reason to have scale. I mean, as HVP, you know, heart and vascular partners, uh, we obviously have the uh, capital to lobby also. Uh, and we also have, uh, you know, we have our own lobbyists and then also we have uh, a lot of, uh you know, a lot of ability to scale product down as cheap as you can get it. So another big
2: advantage. So this kind of goes back to the a- ASC versus OBL. Krishna wants to know, is there logic behind the different reimbursements for different peripheral endovascular CPT codes, depending on the place of service? You know, as we just already talked about, some are better ASC, some are better than the OBL. He's like, I've never figured out like, is there a thoughtful rationale to this? Have you guys heard of any thoughtful rationale or is it just that we're playing checkers and they're playing chess and we're losing.
0: Correct. I think it just, to the question earlier, it, they're just trying to move it. I mean, there's too many unfortunate bad apples and anything that starts to get abused, they obviously take, uh, put their eyes on and instead of building a whole another set of service that has to oversee and governing body, why would they do that and spend money on it when they can ultimately drive it into a space that's already there by changing reimbursement? So, I think that's ultimately why you're seeing it. They're trying to they're trying to whittle out a lot of the people that are in it for the wrong reasons and uh, move it into an area that's already governed. I, uh, I 100% agree.
2: So this is another EMBO question. Uh, David Cohen out of Memphis wants to know any update on on some of the newer EMBO procedures Blake like, you know, GAE, hemorrhoids, uh, and then it, do you have an update on on prostate
0: not really. I mean, we're still obviously waiting on like FDA approval. There's people obviously doing these and submitting them. I think it's risky given that there's been other people have done podcasts about it and saying that, well, it's just it has a, a pastor's code and you don't have to worry about it. I, I wouldn't be so sure that your insurer at some point is not going to look back through and say, what was the indication? And they're going to say, whoa, 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 we don't pay for that. Not like for knees. Oh, they didn't have hemoarthrosis. It was just pain and they're going to say, you know, give me my money back now. So that, that can happen. So just because they, you pass the code and it's like, oh, we don't need to pre-auth it. We can go ahead and do it. doesn't mean that you're ultimately going to get, you know, your reimbursement maintained. Yeah. They, they can come back. We've seen it. So I still think it's pretty um, early to be marketing and going after the Neembolization and all that. Hemorrhoids a different story um, because they all typically have bleeding, so it does meet some indication for it, and I think that that is an area that you can start to grow. But in prostate, it is what it is. it's it's regional right? I mean, it's been FDA approved, so Medicare pays for it. and and for here in Oklahoma, we're lucky, most of our insurers do cover it. Um however, as you know, state to state's completely different. Blue Cross of Oklahoma may cover. You know they cover gonadal vein embolization. However, you know Blue Cross of Virginia will say it, they don't. So it's uh, it's screwy how they all don't have the same uh, requirements, but they don't. So it's it's just kind of a state to state deal, and you got to figure it out. We still have United won't cover it. They still think it's experimental. And we but we get plenty of patients that'll. There, there's enough data out there and enough people now to have been treated that they want to have it done, and so we get a lot more uh, cash. You know, people paying cash to have the procedure done as well. So that's 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 an option also.
2: Don Garbett, who recently visited you guys, um, said he had a, a great experience, but he did come away with a question that had to do with scaling, uh, which is clinic efficiency. He he's like, how do they see sixty patients in one clinic day? And so he wanted to know because obviously this you know, for those people who are looking at scaling, it's how did you guys kind of get to that point? And is there, is there a special sauce to the staffing model to make that happen?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it. I see every patient. I, uh, that's on my schedule. We just use extenders to try to help put that put through and, uh, they're, they are very good at what they do. So, uh, they have those patients really prepped and, and ready to be, uh, spoken to when you walk in the room. Uh, so it's, um, it's all about extenders.
0: Yeah, and I mean, obviously, for me, as the IR, I mean, I do use an extender for our superficial venous side, and they're able to, they see all the new patients, you know, make sure that they're being optimized for and compliant for their workups, getting their ultrasound, and then I see them all afterwards and go over everything. But it just kind of depends, you know, every new, I see every patient also. Ultimately, you know, if it's a patient who here, who's here for their one year or six month follow-up status post arterial intervention and they're, you know, they're coming to make sure they get their ABI signals or their ultrasound and you go over that and you talk with them, make sure they're abiding by their, you know, anticoagulation and non-smoking, all that good stuff. It doesn't take a real long time for those routine follow-ups, right? Now, every pelvic congestion patient and fibroid and prostate, yeah, that may be a 15 to 20 minute clinic uh, from our visit for myself, you know, walking them through, drawing them stuff out. What are we doing? Explaining it to them. So I think a lot of IRs don't, you know, we're not used to having much follow-up, right? We see new patient, you do the procedure and it's gone. But as you grow a a practice like this in the outpatient space where you have a lot of vascular patients as well, you really do start to build up your follow-ups. And so that's a large portion of why like our clinic volume is so high as well, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I I know you guys got some shit for it on Twitter. I saw, which I thought was unwarranted because... You know, my wife's at ENT and she'll come home from clinic and she'll be like, I saw, you know, 50 kids today. And she, she was at Dallas Children's where she's seeing complex patients. And so I, I just was like, I, I don't see that being unreasonable. And, I, I, you know, you hear about that in primary care, especially. Right. And, and what are they to use? They use physician extenders because they're not there for the whole conversation. They're there for the important part of the conversation.
0: Correct. Yeah. And I mean, you know, for us, the problem is we're proceduralist, right? So if someone comes to us, they're coming to us for a specific, typically one specific problem and one specific issue. Like I'm not family medicine where they come with a notebook full of 30 different problems that I have to go through. I mean, there's no way you could do that in that space. But, um, and the other thing is, unfortunately we really kind of have to have longer clinics and, and get through patients because we need the procedural time to be able to do all these patients during the week. So it's, uh, the, the naysayers, they can look at our, our groups, you know, Google reviews and everything else. I don't think that any patient feels slighted and we always run on time. And, um, you know, our ultimate goal is to provide a great service for the patient make sure that they're educated on both the disease process and what they're having done and and they feel comfortable, right? We don't want them to feel like they're just being run through, you know, like cattle. That's not what we want. So I think we're still able to provide that, even though as crazy as it sounds, but we're we'll still be able to provide that to our patients.
1: You know, I think a lot of those patients, uh, to Blake's point, is, you know, they've had a carotid ultrasound for me and an ABI and they're on the chart and I'm just making sure their carotid site that I did is okay and their other side hasn't increased. And, you know, so again, those those conversations aren't as long as, you know, someone with velocities of 400 over 180 that needs a, needs a carotid done. So different story. So I think uh, again, we take a lot of pride in, in in taking good care of our patients and making sure everybody, to, to Blake's point, is is comfortable with uh, with uh, their decision on on how they want to go forward with their care.
2: Just a couple more questions, guys, before we wrap up. Ali Alakani uh, wanted to know any update on percutaneous fistula creations. Are you guys still doing many of those as part of your practice? And any trends on you know how those are going to reimburse in the future?
0: Yeah, they actually just. Got a new code, so they have slightly increased in their reimbursement. I will say that we had not done many, as we've added a couple of vascular surgeons. We've just been doing a lot more open than we have percutaneous. Uh, we did quite a few right at the beginning when it started, but it's always kind of hard at some point for us to me to keep a scalpel out of the vascular surgeon's <laughs> hands. So the uh, but we've we've definitely it's on our agenda for this year to look at again and. And do our due diligence and the data. We had a lot of difficulty in the initial part of just access, you know, since most of those patients are going to have like dual outflow and get them in, either band directing it into one or because trying, I mean, most of our dialysis centers can't even access a you know, 10 millimeter fistula, a you know, cephalic fistula on a skinny person, much less if I'm trying to get them to do dual access and a cephalic and a basilic, and that they've got to palpate because they can't look at it you know so we're, there's some some issues with that and obviously the companies will help with training and those type of things but like in our state when you've got a dialysis center literally on every corner and patients are coming from all of them it makes it a little difficult so
1: yeah i think that as long as you have a good you know maturation program ours are monitored you know with duplex really close and if there if, if we're not seeing flow volumes like we should you know on an rc or bc or whatever or a transposed beat, uh, brachial bacillic, then, you know, they go straight to, or, you know, guide to send them straight to Blake. And, you know, the maturation process starts with balloon angioplasty and, and bulking those things up. And whether it be coil embolization of a big branch or just making a small incision and tying it off, you know. So all those things, the maturation program is real important in in those fistulas. And I think the, the fistula first program we've developed here is, pretty good. And it's, it's hard to beat, try to go a different direction, but we, we, we're always looking at those options for sure.
2: All right. Just to kind of wrap up here, w- one more question for, you know, cause we do have, we actually have a lot of people in the audience who are interested in, you know, they're, they're out there on their own, kind of like uh Neil Corona and Chad Lorsch you know, it's the two of them. People will kind of want to know, okay, we're not ready to like join a, another group or, or, you know, be part of a part of private equity, but it, what's the next best option? Um, you know, and we talked about resources, sharing resources. Is it, is it an MSO join an MSO to save money? Is it uh, I mean, anything else that you can, you know, advice you can give to the people that kind of just want to stay independent.
1: Yeah, I think if you do stay independent, uh, which, you know, we could have done that too. We just had a longer vision, a longer term vision. And it's easier to, like, recruit and keep, you know, good people. Like, I mean, the you know, the gap in Blake and I's age is, you know, I'm almost dead and he's got a lot a lot of years left. So, I mean, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I've got to have a way to recruit these guys. And the, the way that they stay and they, re- and, and, you know, stay excited is is they really have potential to to make you know i would say generational type of money you know on a private equity side but you can stay you can stay independent and do fine a bunch of independents joining together to form to get a, to get a good gpo is is a good idea sure is form an mso and and uh and have some scale uh to buy for sure
2: yeah but the, the staffing is a good point and you know how do you yeah how do you recruit with on the recruitment side somebody had a question as to like what what do you what once you've sold then how do you recruit because are you are you then just recruiting employees or is there still some form of partnership track
1: yeah so we basically recruit them and put them on a just like you would if you were independent you put them on a you know and we still own the majority of the practice we our private equity you know deal is uh, we didn't sell a lot up front but and again the whole philosophy of ours is to maintain local control at every place but but yeah i think that the recruitment's a lot easier because once they've proven themselves and they're you know they they're a hard worker and they're a good partner most of all and they do the right thing for patients um ethically and with good outcomes then they're offered they're given a bonus to put a lot of money in the mso that has a has a very good you know return so sure. Whereas, if you go to a hospital, you've got an RVU number. And when you walk out the door at the hospital, you can take your desk and your plaques with you, but that's about it.
2: All right. To wrap up, you know, I, I just texted Blake, you know, an article about the recently publicly announced uh, DOJ False Claims Act complaint against modern vascular, something that is being spread uh, throughout IRs and probably vascular surgeons as well. I don't know anybody that. Works in the group, so I can't speak for for them, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that are. I, I know, actually, I do know that there's good people that work for them. But do you guys know anything about you know what kind of impact this has for other groups? More importantly,
1: yeah, I think it just really it you know hit home with you know all the due diligence we do when we get called by anybody that's interested in scaling with us is you know once you once you raise the hood up and look at the motor. <laughs> You really need to know that they're doing the right thing and doing the right, you know, doing it the right way. And there's there's absolutely zero, zero tolerance on any Stark Law, you know, violation uh, pathways or uh, algorithms of any kind.
2: All right. Well, any closing remarks before we wrap up, guys? Appreciate you guys coming on again.
0: No, we appreciate you always having us on. It's always a great time and it's just been awesome to see. How uh, back tables just flourished over the years, man. You've done a fantastic job.
1: Well, thanks. Yeah, I second that. And uh, I don't get paid by back table. I just want to go on record as <laughs> saying that. But, uh, but I do I do try my best to push uh vendors your way because I think that it's so important and uh it's been such a great a great podcast. Not not because Blake and I've been on it, but uh, I listen to it all the time. Kudos and um keep the good work. Anything we can do at Heart and Vascular Partners to help
2: back table, uh we're all in. He's been paying me, but that's
0: because yeah. I'm an yeah. IR doctor.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know I pay you guys in hoodies. That's how that's, that's how I right. get everybody that's to do. Right. I need <laughs> another one, by the way. Yeah. I love those hoodies. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, Blake. Also on on the on the topic of apparel, what's what's up with the scrubs? When can we get oh, our hands on some scrubs?
0: God, yeah. Um, some people know about it, I guess, but not all. We've kind of kept it on the on the down low. We had a kind a soft uh launched this year just to kind of trial it out. For everybody that doesn't know, essentially several years ago when I wanted to buy some scrubs because I was tired of my baggy ones making me look like I weighed 400 pounds, I uh, was going to go buy, I won't name names, but competitors. And that was about the time there was a bad post that was kind of uh, anti-DO, me being a fellow DO. I was in like, well, hell, I can't buy these anymore. So I went down this rabbit hole of uh, the scrub market, and here we go. About two years later, we now have a, a company and product that is really actually been pretty phenomenal. The you know our whole goal was to be able to provide a quality that's better than anybody else, but at a price that's way cheaper than everybody else. And ultimately, we we want to do take that and be able to help out um, healthcare workers all across with education and that type of stuff. So that's the ultimate goal, but anyway this 2023 should be our official uh, launch here and we'll uh we'll have lots more on it coming up
2: yeah that's right they're amazing they are nice I got a sample and I am looking forward to uh some advertisements being placed on back to a podcast for the scrubs <laughs> 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 All right, guys, thank you so much for joining. Thanks to our audience. You can get all prior episodes. Again, go check out, if you haven't already, check out Blake and Jim's prior episodes, uh, episode 69, 129, and 205. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts... Chris Beck, Sabine Dond, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from... Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter and Ness
1: Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz.
2: Article and Transcript, support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon.
0: Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana.
2: Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.